the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Tired of the center-left takes of the corporate media? You found the right take. How is it going, everybody? Welcome, welcome, one and all. It has been a while. So sorry for the little uh, unintentional hiatus there, guys. We are very busy this time of year when it comes to politics. On top of it, of course, being sick season. Everybody else I know is getting sick. I swear, co-workers, friends, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's that time of year again, folks. This is episode number 93 of The Right Take. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, I'm your host, Eric Lendrum, and my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff, is not here for this episode, guys. He is once again down in the trenches. He is very, very busy still fighting the good fight, but he will be back soon enough. But in the meantime, the show must go on. And this is going to be a banger show for you guys today. We have a guest on the show today, guys. And a rare occasion indeed, an in-studio guest, which does not happen very often, and a repeat guest. And up to this point, we've had quite a number of, of incredible guests on the show. Caitlin Bennett, our good friend Tom Pappert. Tom Pappert's the only one who has been on multiple times. He's been on three times now, the three-peat, as it were. But now, finally, we have another repeat guest on the show when last he spoke to us in studio that time as well he was running for office here in the great state of virginia vowing to take the fight to amazon and big tech 
and now he is back, still fighting that good fight, warning us about big tech and what we can do to stop them using different weapons other than running for office. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only Tim Kilcullen. Tim, welcome back to The Right Take, my man. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to have you back on, my dude. So, of course, before we dive into the meat of this episode, the stuff you want to talk about, uh, which is a very important subject that in this day and age right now, of course, people are, are talking mostly about the January 6th revelations that Tucker Carlson uh, put out the other day. We on the right take, of course, not to be hipsters or anything, but we generally avoid the huge stories that are just getting nonstop wall-to-wall coverage, whether it's Chinese balloons or now the January 6th stuff, just because everyone's talking about it, all right? Everyone's already talking about it. You know, the Silicon Valley Bank now, I guess, is a thing, but we want to focus on the stuff that is just as important that nobody is talking about and bringing on experts like Tim, who knows what he's talking about when it comes to this stuff. But first, we've got to talk about how Tim and I reconnected not too long ago. It was, of course, the Comic-Con of conservatism, as a friend of mine once described it. CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, finally back in Washington, D.C., back in the swamp for the first time in three years, Tim. First time since uh, 2020. When last I went, that was my first CPAC. And as we all know, that was probably the last big convention-style gathering in the United States, if not the world, before, of course, excrement hit the fan with COVID. Uh, and because, of course, it was always in Maryland, National Harbor at the uh, the Gaylord Convention Center, uh, which, of course, Maryland during that time was under the leadership of Rhino Larry Hogan, who went all in on lockdowns and mandates. So they kicked CPAC out and CPAC basically said, we're going to go to the free states of Florida and Texas. They finally came back to D.C. and it was a truly incredible experience. Uh, Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience at CPAC, the things you got to see and do there? Oh, it, it was incredible. It was incredible. So many, uh, so many great voices, so many great, great points made. And uh, the, the 45th and 47th president of the United States, Donald Trump. That is correct. Of course, the highlight of every CPAC is President Trump's speech. His speech uh, on Saturday night concluding the convention, I think, went for about two hours, maybe a little less than that. It was longer than usual. It was longer than usual. Uh, I took note, because uh, of course we were there for the speech. Tim and I totally coincidentally were very close to each other during the speech. You were seated, seated uh, one row across the aisle from where I was sitting. Um, I made sure to take note of the biggest applause lines for the whole speech. Obviously not counting the final standing ovation, because obviously that's always going to be the biggest when he does the whole, we will make America safe again, strong again, wealthy again, proud again. And of course he always ends it with make America great, great again. again. <laughs> but the biggest applause lines I noticed, uh, I counted four in particular. Um, the first is when he vowed as president on day one to eliminate and revoke all of Joe Biden's executive orders regarding DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So no more forced affirmative action in the federal government. Otherwise, that got a huge round of applause, standing ovation. Uh, almost right after that was when he vowed that he would combat transgenderism. He would make, you know— genital mutilation surgeries on minors illegal he would go after doctors who perform it that got a huge round of applause uh this and, one that, was, and that makes sense considering uh when, when trump was in office he he took that on i mean he he's the one who who tried to prevent this transgenderism from taking over the military he actually has a record on this which a lot of the other candidates don't but he he can back it up with his actions. That is correct. That is correct. I forgot about the tranny ban in the military, that they all lost their minds over the mainstream media. They freaked out and said that he was basically genociding these people, uh, which, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, because there was, to go off on a tangent here, Michael Knowles gave his speech uh, calling for the eradication of transgenderism, which was extraordinarily based. I think that right there made it the third best speech at CPAC 
behind uh, President Trump's and Steve Bannon's. Uh, and we'll come back to Steve Bannon in just a bit. But uh, back on to the uh, big applause lines. This one surprised me, Tim. Another huge applause line is when he vowed to hold China accountable for the damage caused by COVID. That that got a huge round of applause. He didn't explicitly say reparations or anything like that, but hold China accountable considering we are in debt to the tunes of trillions of dollars to China. Uh, that's probably what was on most people's minds is cancellation of our debt or just massive uh, payoff of reparations from China to the United States. And then lastly, of course, what else? Election integrity. He said crackdown on voter fraud, uh, paper ID, pa uh, paper ballots, ID, voter ID, all that stuff. It was it was that, of course, got a huge applause line because voter integrity, vo election integrity is so important. But to me, Tim, this certainly was not the biggest applause line, but the defining line of the speech of the whole night had to be this absolute gem. And if you put me back in the White House, their reign is over. Their reign will be over. And they know it. And America will be a free nation once again. We're not a free nation right now. We don't have free press. We don't have free anything. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen. I am your retribution. Beautiful. That, perfect. Beautiful. That should be the defining theme of his campaign right there. It's like, you people want revenge against what they have done to you, what they have done to our country. Vote for me, and I will enact righteous vengeance on these people. That was perfect. Whoever wrote that deserves a massive raise if they haven't gotten it already. Incredible, incredible line. I just wanted to go over some of the other people who were there, of course. It was such an incredible thrill to me. Uh, not even being in the main ballroom. The, the, ball, the main ballroom where all the speeches are happening is cool, but the real fun is Radio Row, when all, where all the various media outlets have their booths lined up, whether it's radio or, or TV or, or podcasts or whatever. It was incredible to me to see both at the same time Steve Bannon and Donald Trump Jr. doing their respective shows a couple booths down from each other. Bannon was over at the Real America's Voice booth, and Donald Trump Jr. was down at a booth, uh, just the Make America Great Again booth, like around the corner, that big corner of the building there where you turn off uh, to the lower end of Radio Row. And at the same time, they were broadcasting their shows. Uh, Don Jr.'s uh, podcast, uh, Triggered, is an exclusive on Rumble. And then, of course, uh, Steve Bannon's show is also on Rumble, but is uh, primarily through Real America's Voice. And he had Natalie Winters there with him as co-host. And seeing the huge crowds, the crowds gathered for those two was just as big as the crowd in the main ballroom. Like, I'm not even kidding. The, out in Radio Row, crowding the hallway to see those guys speak. That was incredible. Uh, I personally got to meet a handful of great people on the floor. I got to meet uh, Monica Crowley. I thanked her very much for her work uh, on, I mean, of course, she people know her through Fox News, and then she served in the Trump administration with the, secret, as, with the Treasury, Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. But she also has done a lot of work, good work, as a historian on the life of Richard Nixon, who is one of my absolute favorite presidents. And I thanked her for that. And I asked her very quickly, just like, you know, what was President Nixon like? And she said, you know, he, he was he was very kind and he was a genius. And above all else, he was a visionary. She said he has the ability, he had the ability to see into the future about 30 years, to see what America was going to look like in 30 years. So, and it, it is, it needs to be said, Nixon was genuinely an intelligent man. He was probably one of the actually, in terms of highest IQ, one of the smartest men we've ever had as president. It's a shame that he does not get a fair shake by history. Uh, I got to meet John Solomon, the journalist, the founder of Just the News, who has done 
God's work in exposing deep state corruption uh, with real investigative reporting, uh, the likes of which almost no one else has ever done before, of course, after he was fired from the Hill for doing this reporting. He created his own website where he continues to do that reporting to this day. Dave Bratt, the Liberty University professor who famously, of course, in 2014, pulled off one of the single biggest upsets in American history, political upsets in American history, when he defeated Eric Cantor in his own primary. He was the House Majority Leader at the time under uh, John Boehner. He was widely seen as next in line to be Speaker. And for the first time ever in history, a House Majority Leader lost his primary to someone else from his own party. So Dave Bratt served a couple of terms in, uh, in Congress there. Uh, Father Frank Pavone, the man behind Priests for Life, who recently was defrocked by the Vatican, by this, uh, I guess, left-wing Pope Francis's Vatican for his conservative beliefs. A true tragedy there. A great man, great warrior for the unborn, the most vulnerable of us all. And the pinnacle to me was getting to meet Mr. Brexit himself, Nigel Farage. That was truly an incredible experience. It was a great time. I actually first saw him as I was entering the hotel. I was there Thursday morning, then I was there all day Saturday. I went in Saturday... And as soon as I walked in through the main glass sliding doors to get into the hotel, Nigel Farage walks by me and we lock eyes for just a moment. And he's leaving and I'm going in. I almost wanted to stop right there and say hi to him, but I later looked and saw he was going outside for a smoke break and he was talking to somebody else. So I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll let the man have a smoke break. I'm not going to interrupt him there. And then later uh, I got to meet him uh, actually in the convention proper. So that was that was a great time. Um, and yeah, Tim, we, we had a great time actually. <laughs> the kind of story that can only be told at CPAC. We were in line for concessions. If you remember, and we, we were both hungry. We were both hungry boys. We're growing boys after all. And <laughs> of course, just as we were getting there, there were a couple of people ahead of us in line. But just as we were getting to where the good stuff was, they ran out of sandwiches. Yeah, actually, actually the uh, ahead of us in line was Kim Klasik, the uh, is, uh, congressional candidate for Baltimore. Is that who that was? That was Kim Klasik. I yes. didn't even <laughs> I didn't even recognize her. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I did not catch that. But yeah, they ran out of sandwiches which is what everybody's in line for. I mean, like chips and crackers and stuff and like lead salad wraps, I guess. But everyone wanted the sandwiches. Well, no forks. Salad wraps, but no forks. Oh my, I didn't even catch that. No, <laughs> I. You, you were a braver man than I. You stayed in line. We all kind of stayed in line for about 15, 20 minutes, hoping they would just bring out the re replacements. They did not. I tapped out and just got a Kit Kat and a Pepsi. And I kind of survived off that. that was my lunch, basically. But while we were in line, we had a great debate, actually, with a, a gentleman who was in front of us, unintentionally a debate, uh, over... Uh, Pennsylvania over the current state of Pennsylvania as relates to voter fraud and certainly in the context of the the governor and Senate races there, uh, how Dr. Oz lost and how, as I have said before on this podcast, realistically, we lost that election the moment Sean Parnell dropped out. He, he would have been the best nominee for that seat. Fetterman really did kind of have that seat uh, on a lock at that point, although Oz, I think, was the least awful of the remaining candidates and he still lost. And of course, Doug Mastriano, who would have been the most based governor in the whole country had he won. He would have been amazing. He lost in a landslide. And I said to this guy, I'm like, realistically, uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan are gone, gone. Like those are states we should write off in 2024 altogether and just hyper consolidate down to um, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. Because if Trump, assuming he holds everything else, North Carolina, Ohio, Iowa, Florida, and the little congressional districts in Nebraska and Maine, flips those three states, that's him at 272 electoral votes in 2024. I actually, later on in the convention, I didn't get a picture with him because I got a picture with him last time. I met Scott Pressler, actually, the guy who organizes a lot of, non-RNC, thankfully. He's outside the RNC, but he organizes a lot of get-out-the-vote efforts. I got to have the exact same conversation with him, and I told him the same thing. I said, buddy, we just got to write off Pennsylvania Michigan, focus on those three states, and Trump's at 272, even if he loses that one district in, uh, in Maine, and the Democrats still hold that other one in Nebraska, 271. 
all you need is 270 bare minimum that's all you need so i got to have that conversation and help hopefully you know plant that seed in his mind because he obviously is is a brilliant guy who does a lot of good organizing work so maybe maybe he'll take my words to heart we'll see um but yeah and we also had a discussion on ron DeSantis. uh tim if you remember we we talked about ron DeSantis and this fellow i you and i were talking about DeSantis, how DeSantis didn't even show up and we we're like at least nikki haley and vivek ramaswamy showed up to cpac and you and i were in agreement and that was when this guy first turned around. I was like, uh, excuse me, uh, I actually think Ron DeSantis is great. And we're like, oh boy, here we go. So that was a great time. Uh, but yeah, any other highlights, Tim, you want to talk about from CPAC, from your experiences there? Yeah, I, I, I'd say Carrie Lake. Like she she just blew everybody away. So it was a, she'd spoken at the ballroom the night before, but she was uh, she gave a surprise appearance last day of speeches. She wasn't scheduled. And it was probably the worst time slot. People were leaving to get lunch. They were pretty fried. And she came out and you just saw like this rush of people running back in the auditorium. And, you know, the people at their seats, they were they were texting. They weren't initially all that excited. But just it was maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes she went. But by the end of it, every single person was standing up cheering. Uh, this, this is a once in a generation talent. Carrie Lake is uh, she she talks about these issues with so much clarity. It sounds like she's talking directly to you. Um, she, she isn't afraid to talk about things like election integrity, talk about things like censorship. Um, you know, regardless of who the nominee is, hopefully, hopefully it's Trump, but she should really be on the top of the line for anybody's VP pick. She really is. And that, of course, is what the CPAC uh, attendees believe because they did the big straw poll at the end, which, of course, President Trump won the presidential poll. He got like, I think, 62 percent to Ron DeSantis is 20 percent. So it's no question that he is uh, is still the top choice in the VP poll. Yes. Carrie Lake came in first with 20 percent, followed by DeSantis with 14 percent and Nikki Haley with 10 percent. So no surprise there. I mean, I hey, hey, credit to credit Haley. She did show up. She did show up yes. to a, a crowd she knew wouldn't like her. And she still spoke to them. You, you can't say that about Mike Pence. You can't say that about Chris Sununu. She actually had the guts to come and talk to talk to MAGA world. And, and you got to give her credit for that. Exactly. And again, Vivek Ramaswamy also spoke at CPAC. Uh, even others who were considering jumping in, like Mike Pompeo, who spoke at CPAC in 2021 as recently as two years ago. He didn't show up this time. You know, quite a few of the others who are now taking these pot shots at Trump, you know, suggesting they'll run. They didn't show up. So, yeah, respect where respect is due. Nikki Haley had more balls than Ron DeSantis at that point, which that, that says all I need to say. Um, I've heard the arguments against Carrie Lake for VP mostly based on, well, she hasn't won any office yet. She doesn't have the experience. Well, well she did. It. She did win an office. Yes. Let's, let's be honest yes. here. She won. She, she just got it stolen. She and Blake Masters and Mark Fincham and Abe Hamaday, they all got robbed. Arizona was absolutely freaking stolen, and we know it. And it's such a tragedy. It's such a tragedy because here's what I always say, too, why Carrie Lake— would have also been great as governor. You know that give her just two years as governor of Arizona, halfway through her first term, she would outshine Ron DeSantis in every way. She would be outperforming him. She'd be doing even better things than he ever could. And she would become, she would be the new Ron DeSantis, basically. She would upstage him. She would beat him at his own game. And that's why DeSantis feared her. And that's why DeSantis did nothing whatsoever to try to offer her any support when her election was obviously being stolen. Well, yeah. 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 He still, ha he still hasn't called the, he still hasn't said that that election was illegitimate, which exactly. is really a very sad Thing. And of course, on voter fraud, I do have a clip here from Kerry Lake's speech, uh, which very uh, nobody saw this line coming, but this line definitely sums up most of our sentiments when it comes to voter fraud in the 2020 election. But time and time again with President Donald J. Trump, when it seemed like the world was falling apart, he came in and brought it back together. He had these guys back there attacking him. 
left and right. He had the swamp going after him, and he was still getting stuff done. And now we have stumbling, bumbling Joe Biden. 81 million votes. My ass. <laughs> did not expect that, but you know what? She's not wrong. Trump did a very an amazing historic job as president, and we expect to believe that. And here's the thing. I don't doubt that Biden won the popular vote because of California. Oh, for sure. California. He probably got at least maybe three to four million more votes, uh, popular votes than Trump due to California, just like Hillary did. I don't think he got 81 million. I think it was probably more in the ballpark of like uh, 77 million, maybe, maybe 78. Oh, I, I, I could believe a, a 80 million. I mean, you got to keep in mind it, it the election ultimately hinged on about 100,000 votes in six key swing states. Uh, he it, it wouldn't it wouldn't take that many mules, probably only about 2000 of them to uh, to shift the election. Someone should make a documentary about that. 2000 mules. That's a great title. <laughs> that's you know, that's that, it's fitting. It's fitting. OK, but yeah, so CPAC was absolutely incredible. Uh, great experience. I'm glad that it is back in D.C. And I look forward to many, many more in the near future that we can now go to because it is located in our area here in the swamp. We get to be in the heart of where everything happens. Uh, but whilst we were at CPAC, again, and while we were in line, actually, for concessions, as I mentioned before, before we started the debate with the gentleman who was pro Ron DeSantis, um, you started— A nice man, by the way. If he, 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 was not, he was gracious. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't mean. No, he, he had some great arguments and some great back and forths, and he conceded some of my points. It, it was a good time. We're, we're all friends here. There was, no, there was nobody there that, of course, we did not want to be there other than the, uh, the drag queen that we saw walking around. I don't know what that Lady freak Maga. was still doing. That. He, he should be thrown out just like all the Nick Fuentes fanboys oh, were. Absolutely. Like, seriously, they all should just be thrown out. Let them go do what they want at their little, you know, 50-person gathering. But uh, other than that, no, it was a great time. But before it turned into a bit of a three-way debate there, you and I were having a conversation, and you brought up something that you have been keeping a close eye on uh, a very big development, of course, it's coming from the Supreme Court. There's a lot of big pending cases before the Supreme Court this year. And again, we have a solid, allegedly 6-3, maybe more of a 5-4 conservative majority when you take John Roberts into account. But you mentioned one very important case coming before the Supreme Court this year that will be decided this year, correct? Yes, yes, it will be decided this uh, this spring. All right, so why don't you go ahead and for the main topic here of this episode, Tim, tell our listeners about... The Supreme Court case that, for all intents and purposes, could break the back of big tech. Yeah, so uh, the, the case, it's, it's Gonzalez v. Google, and it's, it, it really is, is a shame that uh, the corporate media isn't covering this case because uh, the, the, the effect of this case is going to be huge. Um, for all of common law history, like long before we even had a country, there was always a distinction between two, uh, two types of liability for people who hosted speech. There were publishers, uh, like a newspaper, and then there were distributors, like a newspaper stand. And a publisher, they uh, they have a First Amendment right to whatever they want to say, um, but they're also liable for it. So if you, if you publish threats, if you publish defamation, if you commit fraud, if you're a publisher, you're held liable as if that's your own speech. On the other hand, there were uh, there were distributors, and they uh, a telegram service, a newspaper stand. They couldn't really be expected to. Uh, to know the content they have. So as long as they there was no evidence that they knew there was harm in what they were distributing, they wouldn't be held liable. Um, but when the when the internet came, you had uh, you had some stupid judges not understanding that difference, deciding they knew better. And actually it goes back to there was this case um, have 
guessing a lot of your listeners have watched the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. I did. I myself saw that movie only for the first time not too long ago. Of course, it's a Martin Scorsese movie, so I was going to see it eventually. But yes, I think most people are at the very least familiar with The Wolf of Wall Street. So, of course, what we are getting at here is how I didn't even know this until you showed me uh, some of the research you had done. Explain to us how indirectly The Wolf of Wall Street influenced the rise of the internet to the point that it has now become so powerful and legally protected from all these things. Yeah, so uh, so if if in The Wolf of Wall Street, you might remember a character uh, played by Jonah Hill that's based on a man named uh, Danny Porish, who is just a degenerate on every level. And somebody had, uh, this is in the 90s, uh, this tech firm, Prodigy, owned a forum, and some journalist posted accurately that Danny Porish was a scam artist, uh, that he was a vile person, and that he was about to get indicted, which, if you've seen the movie, he, sure enough, he did. So it was real journalism, basically. It was real journalism. <laughs> and uh, Danny Porish, because he's a terrible person, he sued Prodigy, and he wanted this uh, this speech taken down. And it went to this New York court, and a very complicated, convoluted decision where it's it's not really clear what the scope of the, the ruling would have been. This New York state court um, basically ruled in favor of Porch, said his lawsuit could go forwards, um, saying that maybe Prodigy should be treated as a publisher as if they'd said the things against Porch. Now, obviously, that suit fell apart when Porch went to prison, and it was shown that everything it said was accurate. But this really scared Congress, so they— uh, they were passing this big Communications Decency Act at the time, and they decided to add this Section 230 to it to, to really clarify the law that the Internet wouldn't be treated any differently than the common law had been for 200 years. And, and the law is really clear. It says that, um, that if you're a platform, you're a distributor. Like you should not be, it doesn't say the word distributor. It says you should not be treated as a publisher. And then it lists a few enumerated things that they could take down posts for without incurring publisher liability, without making it their speech. So it says if, if, if it's lewd content, lascivious content, excessively violent, threatening, fraud, things like that. Um, it, it really was a very clear statute, and it was added to the Communications Decency Act, which was uh, basically an anti-porn bill that was passing through Congress in 96, signed by Bill Clinton. Um, the, most of the CDA was actually struck down by the Supreme Court pretty much immediately after, in the case Reno v. ACLU. Section 230 wasn't at issue in that case, and that actually has never been interpreted by the court until this year, where it will be in Gonzalez, uh, which is really a judicial abdication on the part of Rehnquist and now John Roberts to not hear those cases. Because what the lower courts have done to this really clear statute that's constitutionally consistent, uh, fits in with like centuries of common law, like it has really been bastardized by these uh, these woke lower court judges, uh, while people like John Roberts have just sat back and done nothing. Yeah, and that of course has led to because, like you said, one of their mistakes early on, to be fair, is that they could not have seen how the media, how the internet would be so different from conventional media, how it would become so much more powerful. Though, though but, in fairness, Congress did. Section 230's text is really saying, well, we're just going to apply the same Constitution, the same laws that we've always had. Um, it's just uh, judges had less imagination. Which sounds about right, if we're being honest. But yeah, so obviously that has become a huge issue with regards to the 
protections that social media companies have from whatever is posted on them, whether it's it's slander, whether it's libel, fake news, a variety of things. And, uh, and in, protections for censorship actions. I was Yes, in regards to censorship is because, of course, big tech has gotten so big, it is the new public square. They can just censor whatever they want and say, oh, well, Section 230, we're good, we're covered. You know. Yeah, even though the text of Section 230, it says nothing of the sort. So there's there's actually so it started with this case Zarin this guy Kenneth Zarin he was in uh in Virginia actually and somebody um, impersonating him online uh, posted a bunch of stuff praising the Oklahoma City bombing with his personal information to destroy a small business um, he emailed AOL with photocopies of his ID showing this this person isn't me please take it down what a throwback by the way we're talking about the Oklahoma City bombing and AOL what yeah. a simpler times to say the least uh, so he proved with you know his ID and everything his personal information that it wasn't him and so AOL, AOL tells him they tell him we're gonna take it down but they lied their ass off and they did no such thing so he he sues and says well as the section 230 says your distributor distributor liability means um, if you know something is harmful, you have to take it down. And this woke judge in Virginia decides that actually, no, he's going to reinterpret Section 230. It means there's no liability no matter what they do, even though they knew for a fact it was false and they emailed him saying, we'll take it down. It's okay. They have a license to lie, which no distributor had ever had before in human history. But this judge decided to reinterpret Section 230 to have he says in it, he's like, well, the CDA is clearly meant to uh, to immunize from uh, from any harmful content uh, on the part of the distributor. Well, no, it doesn't. The original statute, it flat out was making them liable for the pornography. It basically was a porn ban. So the idea that they wouldn't be liable, it's just flat out he was lying, basically. Like, you're not supposed to slander a judge, but the dude was lying. <laughs> We really should be able to slander judges, if I'm being honest. You look at people like, you know, uh, Judge Emmett Sullivan and the others in charge of all the J6 sentencing and whatnot. Those oh, people. Yeah. Slander is the least of what they deserve, if I'm being honest. They deserve much, much worse things to happen to them, and that's all I'll say on that subject. But point being, so that Zarin lawsuit you mentioned, or that case, that is my understanding that that is the most recent uh, interpretation of Section 230 that is still in place to this day? Or yes. Well, and some other even worse judges took that decision and ran with it. So you got this case in uh, in— Kentucky uh, called Dirty World. Some people might know the reality star Nick Ritchie. He ran a site where uh, he says it's like a social media site, but that's that's not really accurate. So what they do is it's not like Facebook where you just post on the platform. You give submissions of dirt of other members of your community, um, and he will, if he finds it dirty enough, he will now he's had to sell the site because he's a degenerate. But back then, lots uh, of degenerates was, uh, on the road to building Section Two Thirty. Yeah, so. lots, lots of awful, awful people. Fitting. Um, but he would, he would reap. Uh, he would manually post what it says and add his own little comments. So there was a high school teacher at Covington Catholic, and he, uh, somebody posted falsely a bunch of horrible stuff, accusing her of all sorts of sexual immorality. And Nick Ritchie decided to repost it, added his cute little saying, uh, you know, teachers, they're freaks in the sheets. And the court says, well, under the Zarin precedent, we're actually going to immunize that. We're going to say that he has the right to do that. That that. So not only is is this they're not even going to sign distributor liability, this, this guy is personally writing out the text, manually posting up on his site uh, this, this libelous material. And they don't hold him to account at all. And this is against this isn't even against like 
famous you know, celebrities, politicians. This is against just some nobody. Some teacher. random teacher. Just, some random teacher decides to destroy her life because he feels like it. For the lulz. Basically, kind of, you know, the original troll. One of the original trolls way back in the day, basically. Just, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, the, obviously, and as you said, they've just upheld that precedent all this time later. And, and sorry, there's one more case. It just Let's blows it. my mind. It's And this is where they, after Dirty World, and they basically immunize any conduct that the uh, the platforms do, they, they started to immunize all sorts of censorship. Like I said, Section 230, it has a list of reasons you're allowed to censor without they're becoming liability. So if, if it's lascivious content, if it's lewd content, if it's excessively violent. Well, so the Facebook, Meta now, they ban this page of a of an organization, an American organization called Seeks for Justice. Um, this this organization, it's a Sikhs rights group, advocates for the establishment of Punjabistan, which would be in northern India. It's a Sikh community. Um, Facebook bans it. They get sued under the Civil Rights Act and or under civil rights law, and astoundingly, Facebook meta now goes to court, and they argue, well, we're not going to say why we banned them, but even if our stated reason for banning them was racial or religious animus, that was our stated reason, we are protected. So basically, Section 230 is more powerful than the Civil Rights Act. Yes, basically. and that's wow. what the court says. The court says somehow it's good faith for meta to ban people because of their ethnicity, and that's their stated reason. So apparently in this 96 Act that Bill Clinton signed, he was repealing the Civil Rights Act as it applies to Amazon, Google, Facebook, and he he just didn't realize it. Wow. So basically, uh, all we really need to do to get the left to turn on big tech is say, hey, big tech can kick all black people off their platform, and they're protected by Section 230. Well, basically. I mean, basically what Google is arguing in this Gonzalez case is Seeks for Justice is rightly decided. They have the right to ban all black people from Gmail. Wow. And that, that is the lower court ruling. If you're in the Ninth Circuit right now, that is the binding precedent, is that Google has the right to ban you from email. Amazon can cut down your web hosting simply because you're black, simply because you're Jewish, simply because— A Sikh seeking justice. Yes. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Wow. I did not—now, that blows my mind. I literally did not know until just now— the idea that Section 230 is more powerful than the Civil Rights Act. that just Yeah, and, and to be clear, there's nothing in the statute that says that. This is just some judges who decided to rewrite the law, and John Roberts let them. John Roberts, exactly. Still Chief Justice to this day. So that, that is a perfect segue then to, of course, we have this case that is now pending before the Supreme Court that observers seem to say could finally be what breaks Section 230 once and for all, as it should have been a long time ago. It, it could, or it could be the one that codifies it. Ooh. So this is really a make-or-break moment for basically for America. I mean, either this wacky left-wing woke judge stuff is going to become the law of the land, or the Supreme Court's finally going to enforce the statute as it's written. All right, so on that note then, tell us about this case, Gonzalez v. Google. Okay, so it actually goes back to uh, to a really heartbreaking event, the 11-13-2015 massacre in Paris, um, which was perpetrated by 12 members of ISIS, well-funded, well-financed, involved bombings, shootings. Um, and one of the victims was a college student named Nohemi Gonzalez from California, and her parents are suing YouTube because what YouTube's algorithm was doing was it was promoting ISIS propaganda, including propaganda specifically made by these terrorists. They, they, they were YouTube personalities, the shooters in this, in this massacre, astoundingly. And the YouTube algorithm kept promoting these videos that would show most disgusting amounts of violence, uh, celebrating terror, 
and seeking ways to fund terror, to buy their bombs, to buy their guns, to buy their fake passports, which is what they used to kill 130 people. 130 people died that night. And just the uh, the astounding thing is, um, at the same time YouTube was doing this, they were banning Joyce Bartholomew, who was a, a pro-life music artist who wrote her own personal song talking about uh, why uh, why she thought that abortion uh, was morally – she didn't even call for any legislation, just saying why uh, why she thought the unborn deserved rights. And YouTube banned that. They, they found that too hateful. But uh, planning out a massacre of 130 people on behalf of radical jihad, that, that wasn't really something they concerned themselves with. Basically, YouTube says ISIS good, orange man bad. Like, you know, they'll ban yes. tr President Trump. They'll ban anybody who even hints at voter fraud in 2020. But uh, ISIS, oh, no, that's cool. It's absolutely unreal. So, of course, her family is suing YouTube, basically arguing that not only by these videos being allowed to be posted, but the algorithms promoting these videos yes. basically said you guys are indirectly responsible for our daughter's death. Yes, yes, that's that's what the suit says. And you've got uh, Clarence Thomas with oral arguments. He was he was saying, well, well, the way we should look at it is is this absolute immunity thing that doesn't really seem to mean the text, but maybe distributor immunity, unless they were going beyond the enumerated list of reasons they could censor. Um, if they were censoring for other reasons, which we know YouTube was, um, maybe that they'll be even held liable as a speaker. So then you mentioned Clarence Thomas, of course, who is basically the shadow chief justice, if we're being honest. He is the leader of the court's uh, ideologically conservative majority. As we know, of course, it's a 6-3 court in terms of six Republican-appointed justices and three Democrat-appointed justices. Uh, Roberts is a total squish swing vote. So, But even without him, it still is a 5-4 cons actual conservative majority, as we saw with Dobbs, uh, the case that overturned well, Roe. Well, you, you I'll, I'll push back on that, actually. Okay. I, I don't think the court is as conservative as people make it out to be. I mean, yeah, conservatives won with Dobbs. Uh, now people in, what, a third of the states have to take a bus ride to pick up their MISO prescription. Woohoo! <laughs> but on issue after issue after issue that are uh, not as covered by the corporate media, they consistently rule against the Constitution, rule against Congress, rule against acts of legislature simply to favor woke activists who are going to the courts because they can't win through the democratic process. So which justices then, if we may, uh, again, just to recap, you have Clarence Thomas, you have uh, Samuel Alito, you have Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and of course, uh, the Chad, the man who likes beer, Brett Kavanaugh. Which of these, and of course, Roberts, which of the conservative justices are the most egregious offenders in terms of betraying the Constitution? Well, uh, in different ways. So, you know, Neil Gorsuch, he gave half of Oklahoma uh, away, said it was actually secretly an Indian reservation. We just didn't know it. He also said that... Uh, that under the Civil Rights Act, transvestites have a right to go into girls' locker rooms, and you can't stop them. Uh, I don't remember reading that in the text. Uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, he he wavered for a long time before he uh, held that the eviction moratorium was uh, was unconstitutional. And Brett Kavanaugh joined Roberts and the, the libs in upholding the OSHA—not uh, the OSHA, the Medicaid mandate of Biden that to this day, it's still in effect right now— if you are a healthcare worker in a hospital funded by Medicaid, which, by the way, is every hospital, you need to take this experimental mRNA poison that doesn't even work or lose your job. And that that's Kavanaugh. And, and then Barrett, uh, you know, the handmaiden as the left likes to make her out to be, 
Let's remember that she rubber-stamped J.B. Pritzker's speech-selective lockdowns during 2020. J.B. Pritzker, a man, he was he's the head of the Hyatt Empire, governor of Illinois. He stands in the middle of a giant crowd during the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. The peaceful protests the, that burned down half of the country. Yeah, yeah. Mo- mostly peaceful. And he uh, he encourages them to to make their voices heard. But then he is ordering his state troopers to shut down the RNC conference, the, literally the rally for his political opponent. And Amy Coney Barrett says that's justified under public health. I mean, we, we've got a First Amendment. It says freedom of assembly. It says freedom of speech. And, and I don't think the virus should really care, you know, who, who, who you support for governor. But under Amy Coney Barrett's logic, I guess it does. I'll never forget that. Uh, I think it was CNN. I could be wrong. There was this article literally declaring, oh, no, no, you're safe from COVID if you go to racial justice protests. But if you go to like uh, Trump rallies or anti-vaccine or anti-mask protests, you'll get sick at those. You know, just uh, unironically, we talked about this. I talked about this in my speech back in California. Oh, goodness. A couple of years ago now, I said, I cited the article and everything. You can't make this stuff up. And Barrett basically agreed with them. That's that's ridiculous consider especially when you consider what barrett and kavanaugh in particular went through to get confirmed you think they would have like the in their minds to do righteous vengeance against these people yeah yeah i mean amy coney barrett was was attacked on the stand for her religion uh diane feinstein basically said that because she's a catholic she shouldn't serve in the court and yet she still is going to help the left stomp on her first amendment rights it's kind of astounding it really is. I'll, I'll never forget when a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, actually you know him as well as uh, Jacob and I do, um, he mentioned uh, when all this chaos of like, oh, Amy Coney Barrett's basically a terrorist because she's Catholic. He said, um, if they really think Catholics are bad, they should put a, a Southern Baptist justice on the court and they'll be begging for a, a nine Catholic justice court. <laughs> like, it was great. But yes, so basically what you're saying is the only ones we can trust are Thomas and Alito. Like, they're the only good ones, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's fair. And they are good guys, obviously. Again, Justice Thomas is the best, and Alito was the one who wrote the Dobbs decision, so mad props to those guys. So with that uh, grim, unfortunately grim outlook there, uh, Tim, as we talked about already uh, at CPAC in this discussion we first had, what, if you had to take an educated guess, how do you think Gonzalez v. Google will go? Along what lines when it comes to the justices? So I I think it's going to be a three-way split. I think uh, Thomas and Alito and maybe... Two of the three Trump judges are going to side with the text of the statute. I think on the other end, you're going to have Kentonji Brown Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor, and they're going to they're going to make this argument that Jackson was making at the court, which was to actually rewrite the statute to be the reverse. So what uh, what Kentonji Brown Jackson was saying, which it just blows my mind. There's no way she can actually believe this is what the law is. She says, "Well, you should." apply pub, uh, a publisher liability to anything on a platform. So they're liable for everything, but give them complete immunity if they censor, regardless of the reason they censor. So basically, the seeks for justice immunity, you can ban people because of their race, but at the same time, r- go back to the Danny Porich's suit and and let, let those kind of uh, badgering of journalists uh survive, which is literally the exact, exact opposite of what Section 230 says. But I think I think when she makes arguments like that, she doesn't think that she can get, you know, more than one other person agree with her. I think the point of that is to provide cover for John Roberts to create a centrist concurring opinion that'll uh, that's trying to find a middle ground, which is where he'll basically just uphold what the lower courts have done, which is complete immunity for anything they keep up.
and complete immunity for any reason they take down. So then if it is a three, that's interesting, that uh, theory. If it is a three-way split, uh, what happens in that case? Does it, is it a plurality of justices at that point, or uh, how, how does that work? Uh, so there's the precedent's going to not be as strong. Um, obviously, the, the Gonzalez's would lose in that case, but they would lose on their individual level. There, there wouldn't necessarily be a five-justice majority making any larger point about what the law of the land is as it applies to Section 230. Or you would have to cobble it together from different bits and pieces of the three and see which which areas five people would agree with on each specific point in the law. So basically what you're saying is that although this could potentially have been the case that, as I said, would break the back of big tech by eliminating Section 231 once and for all, it's basically just going to be another instance of the Supreme Court kicking the can down the road. Well, to, to be clear, nobody's asking to eliminate Section 230. They're asking to apply Section 230 as it was written by Congress and it would be permissible under the Constitution. And, yeah, they probably are going to um, basically – well, who, who knows? Who knows what they'll do? It's, it's an unpredictable court. But it, there's definitely a fear that they will kick the count down the road. Well, I guess we will have to wait and see. Uh, do we know – you said oral arguments already happened. Do we know about when like decisions are expected to be made in that case? Yep. Uh, I mean, they're they're already releasing opinions, but because this is a big one, it's probably going to be one of the last they release, right, with the affirmative action one, the other free speech ones, uh, you know, three or three creative, those those ones. So probably late May, early June. All right. So the summer, as always, the summer is usually that's when they wait for, you know, the summer of rage, like when they release Dobbs and then there were a whole bunch of, you know, uh, pro-abortion riots all across the country. Uh, we still have a bit of time left in this episode, Tim. It, that went by far too quick because, of course, you do a great job explaining it. Uh, you hinted – I was actually going to ask you, and you hinted at it very briefly. We also had this discussion in the concessions line at CPAC. Tell us about some of those other Supreme Court cases, uh, namely the affirmative action one that we talked about as well. What's, again, another potentially monumental case on affirmative action that you are a little more skeptical about? Yeah, well, there, there's two affirmative action cases before the Supreme Court. Um one of them dealing with a public school, one of them dealing with a private school. And I, uh, they're, they're also different cause of action, some under statutes like the Civil Rights Act, others under the 14th Amendment. Um, and theoretically, the court could, could get rid of affirmative action, either in the private or the public uh, sense for, for schools. Again, it's the Roberts Court. I, I, I think people are being a little too optimistic there. There also is a, is a separate free speech on the Internet case. Three or three creative via Lennis. Um, and in that case, it's it's actually not a digital platform, not a Section 230 platform. It's a uh, website creator who doesn't want to create um, websites for LGBTQ weddings. And uh, astoundingly— So basically an internet-based version of the Colorado Cake Baker, basically. Yes. Oh, yes. goodness. But, Sorry, but, continue. But get this. It's, it's 303 creative. It's astounding. So like I said, these lower court judges, they said Section 230, even though it doesn't, they've said that it gives the right to censor, to ban people, to refuse business from web hosting, from Gmail, uh, for any reason, even their race, their religion, and yes, their sexual orientation. But in 303 Creative, they're saying, well, a website designer who's, who is literally liable, and to be clear, if, if you design someone a website for them and that website, you know, say, supports ISIS and recommends killing 130 people in Paris, yeah, you're going to be held liable for that. But they're saying that under public accommodation laws, those people have to be forced to create speech they disagree with, 
but the web hosting service that they create that website on has the right to ban gay people, ban black people, ban Christians, ban whoever they want. So basically the person who writes the post calling for the killing of innocent civilians in the name of Allah, that person's good. But if someone then creates a unique font for that post and they do graphic design for that post, that person's liable basically is kind of what you're saying. I mean, yeah, basically basically they're saying that, that she can't, you can't refuse service if you design websites. But if you were a website hoster like Amazon, AWS, which controls 85% of all websites, you can ban people for being gay and you can say it's not a speech thing. It's not that we disagree with the marriage ceremony. It's just that we're prejudiced and that's a perfectly valid justification. And that one as well, how do you think that particular case is going to go before the Supreme Court? Well, I think the Supreme Court is not going to want to touch the hypocrisy of of what – what I mean if, if they rule one way in Gonzalez and say absolute right for web hosters to ban on the basis of sexual orientation – and then simultaneously say, as the lower courts have done, that website designers are mandated to uh, to not discriminate, even if it violates their religious beliefs and is creating speech that both sides agree is speech. I mean, these are such completely incompatible things that the, the lower courts have presented. I, I would imagine that even Roberts doesn't have the balls to try and try and push something like that past us. Oh my gosh. So you think they'll just kick the can down the road on that case as well rather than make a decision? No, I think I think they'll start with the website designer. You'll so okay, okay. So at least one definitive decision will come out of this plethora of cases, uh, even if it is not the ideal decision. Goodness gracious. All this has convinced me, Tim. Yeah, and I you thank you have success against me. The internet was a mistake. Like, let's be honest. The internet just shouldn't have existed in this race. Society, mankind would be better off without the existence of the internet. Uh, I, I just got one more question then for you. So basically, we've come to the conclusion, Supreme Court, which is ostensibly the final say on this stuff, like if they made that call in Section 230, it would have been the law of the land. If the Supreme Court is not going to come to our defense, and if Congress is not going to do anything about it, what can we even as a society begin to do to deal with this problem? Is it just going to take uh, five more Elon Musks coming along and just buying all the big tech platforms? Well, no, because th this isn't the last Supreme Court case. So we've had under Trump's urging two actual conservative governors, Ron DeSantis, for all his flaws, he's not the worst, and Greg Abbott in Texas. They passed laws and they said, well, fine, even if you accept this insane idea that they're not, you know, liable under traditional contract law or anything like that under Section 230, and they are completely immunized for everything they do. Well, we're at least going to make uh, you have to follow our state laws, and we're going to create a state law that says you can't censor on the basis of political viewpoint. And the Florida one is even a little milder. It just says you have to disclose it as any other political contribution, which is what it is. Um. And that's going to be heard presumably next term by the Supreme Court. Right now, um, the Supreme Court has a temporary injunction on those two laws. If those two laws went into effect, we'd have free speech on the Internet. Um, this, this censoring that you're seeing of, of you know, things like the New York Post article, um, of, of journalists, of exactly what Section 230 was created to prevent, of people like Danny Porish or whatever degenerate leftists like Joe Biden these days – pressures social media sites to take down journalism that won't happen anymore um which all 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 that would need to happen is for the supreme court to lift their injunction because there's there's two laws that are already in effect so 
the Gonzalez ruling won't as much as a blow it will be if we lose on this. There still is next year, and those two they're they're called uh, they're called Moody v. NetChoice and NetChoice v. Paxton after the two great attorney generals Ashley Moody and Ken Paxton. And a, a victory in just one of them would would solve this problem. Because basically a victory in either one of those cases would basically set the precedent that individual states can make these laws where, you know, the national, the federal precedent isn't quite there. Is that basically what you're saying? So basically it just comes down to which states are going to take action after that? Well, yeah. And I, I doubt, like, if you're Amazon, you're going to create 50 different web hosting services. Ah, so then one state puts pressure on them that... You know, puts the pressure on. I mean, that, that's what California did with net neutrality. Basically, their right. the federal net neutrality thing fell through under Sundar Pichai. So California just basically created a state law. And by the way, ISPs, information services providers, they're Section two thirty platforms too. So technically, this whole Gonzalez ruling is challenging the idea of net neutrality. The Supreme Court is trying to like contort and say, oh, oh we're not going to s- settle the Section two thirty issue or the sorry the um net neutrality issue, there is a very real fear that if Kentonji Brown-Jackson's opinion wins out, net neutrality will be made illegal by act of the Supreme Court. All right, all right. So overall, a mixed bag, but there are some things we can look forward to that could very well go our way. Uh, yes, yes. and and But also keep the pressure on the courts. Um, yeah, John Roberts, I, I think I think he, he takes public opinion into account when he's writing his decisions. So... The more uh, the more conservatives, populists, libertarians speak out on these issues, the more likely they'll go their way. So basically, we just got we got to keep talking about big tech, making it a major issue, and putting that pressure on justices and state law lawmakers and governors as well. Okay, that's, absolutely, that, absolutely. So yeah, that should be one of the top issues I think for the agenda going forward. I mean, immigration to me still is always going to be the biggest issue, but I would put big tech. I definitely put it in my top five. Um, I'm trying to think just off the top of my head what else. Pro- I mean, transgenderism is definitely a top three one for me. And again, as we saw from the response to President Trump's CPAC speech, that's a top issue for a lot of other people in the base as well. But thank you, of course, so much for that that fountain of information, Tim. It was very, very useful. It's important to know this stuff, guys. This is you, you got to get into the weeds of some of this stuff about these individual precedents, these cases that led us to where we are now. Sometimes it's not as simple as just one law. Sometimes it's not as simple as one instance. It's a plethora of things. It's one thing after another that builds up to this absolutely convoluted nightmare that we are in now. And only when we understand that and then deter- determine a particular solution can we begin to fix these problems? And big tech is one of the biggest problems. Again, Elon Musk is doing a great job, but he is just one guy and it's just one platform. There's still a lot more to go and a lot more to deal with. So uh, Tim, before we sign off this episode, uh, where can people find you online or follow your work as you continue to uh, fight the good fight against big tech? Uh, yeah, well, uh, you can check out my site. Uh, is created back when I was uh, running for office, Kilcullen for Virginia. And uh, yes, yeah, I uh, get into uh, litigation on these issues. I'll, I'll Look forward to speaking out about it more. Awesome. Honored to have you back at any point in time. So, yes, Kilcullen for Virginia.com. That's K I L C U L L E N for the, the word for Virginia.com. And thank you guys, as always, so much for tuning in to the latest episode here of The Right Take. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. A full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting all that we do here on the right take righttakepodcast.com slash support we'll talk to you next time guys 